all of our children come from the Department of Social Development, and they've either been abandoned, removed, or orphaned. They've all experienced trauma and loss. We've had babies that were four days old, five days old, you know, wrapped in tinfoil, found in a field. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Nina Neubauer is a German-American full-time volunteer and missionary who's been in South Africa more than eight years. She serves full-time at a children's home in South Africa and has been a foster mom and is currently an auntie to more than 40 kids. My name is Russell Pollitt and this is Expanding Horizons. Nina, thank you so much for coming in and being willing to do this podcast. Thanks, Russell. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, your family, your hobbies, your interests. Okay. I'm German-born, but we immigrated to America when I was five. So culturally, I consider myself an American. I always like to say I'm 90% American, although I'm technically 100% German. So I grew up in America and went to school, studied to be a teacher, have always loved children. I'm a single person, so I don't have any children of my own. And in my free time, I like to go to coffee shops, read, journal, go on walks, like in Joburg at Delta Park or Emerentia. Yeah. Whereabouts in the States did you grow up? I grew up on the East Coast, so outside of New York and then outside of Washington, D.C. Okay. And then you came to South Africa. What brought you here? So actually, the 2010 World Cup brought me here. Oh, wow. Yeah, I came on holiday with two girlfriends of mine. They organized the trip. I didn't really think it was going to happen because World Cup tickets can be difficult to procure. But we came on holiday, and um, that's when I remembered I'd actually, when I was about an early preteen, I'd wanted to work with orphans in Africa. And when I was 18, I kind of felt like, God telling me I might be a missionary, but I was in college at that point studying. So when I came on holiday for the World Cup, I was actually 35 years old, so a long time afterwards. And I was in an open space. I just left a job in February, so I was in this space where I could remember these things and where these dreams kind of popped back up into my conscience. And then you went back home after the World Cup. I came to the World Cup, and... Before I came, I had heard of a missionary, an American missionary couple, friends of friends in a church I used to go to that opened children's homes in Johannesburg. Mm -hmm. But I thought, Johannesburg is big. We're in the city for three days. We're going on safari. Let me just email them after I leave if I like it here. And providentially, we stayed with friends of friends. We landed in Joburg on my birthday. The next day was a Sunday. I happened to mention these American missionaries, and the people we were staying with were like, oh, we know them. You can meet them at church tomorrow. Wow. They attended the same church. It was a Saturday night. We had Sunday free. We weren't going to safari until Monday. So it really felt providential. And I met them. Before I left, I went and visited the baby haven for about 30 minutes, played with the little babies, enjoyed it, flew home. Wow. So then the story continues. I flew home. Kept thinking about it. I was doing temping work, just a temp job, and it just felt very purposeless. You know, I was earning a good paycheck. There was room for advancement, but it felt meaningless. And I made a pros and cons list, but in my heart, I just, I wanted to see if I could come back, just short term. So I tried to come back for three months for a short term stint to volunteer, and that turned into eight and a half years. 
So I came to surf for three months. It turned into four, and I loved it so much. I felt like I found my fit. I felt like I had something to offer and that I was also receiving a lot in return with the children that I worked with. And I asked the couple in charge if I could come back, and they said yes. I went home, told my church, told my family, put some things in storage, sold some things, and moved three months later. That's a real leap of faith to be able to do that. I mean, just to move across the world and to say, I'm going. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe God had primed me, you know, from early the early years. I think maybe that was a little bit in me. I think I didn't have a lot of things I was tied down to, so I was traveling light. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a mortgage. I was single. I didn't own a lot of stuff. I gave my car away. It made it easy. Mm. It made it easy. Mm. You said that life was kind of meaningless and you made a list of pros and cons. I mean, almost like you went through a discernment process. And many people today say, you know, I often feel what I'm doing is meaningless. Can you talk a little bit more about that experience? I mean, making that list of pros and cons. What did you actually do? How did you figure this out? I'm a heart overhead person. So I usually go with my heart, Mm -hmm. but I think I just made the list because I was bored at work and I had time. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I, I just made lists of benefits of staying and kind of by some of the standards of society, like I could earn a lot more money, I could possibly be promoted, but I didn't enjoy it. It was a temp job at a defense company, ironically. So it wasn't something I was passionate about. It was more just to exist Mm -hmm. and to pay bills. And I think the other side of that was just not knowing. I knew I would love what I did, but how am I going to exist and Mm. pay bills? But I do find that when you take leaps of faith, God provides Mm. and that he shows you then that you're not the provider of all things. You know, he comes through in miraculous ways where it actually increases the measure of your faith Mm. because you're letting him provide for you and you're not trying to manage everything on your own. It's Mm. actually, it's living much more freely and I feel way more blessed and I just, I love it so much more. So you're not just existing at the moment. No, I'm thriving. God has provided above and beyond my needs Each time, you know, the first two years, I didn't have a car. And then I was like, I think I need a car now. I think mobility was getting hard. And just at that time, somebody I knew was selling a car. It was a car I had had my eyes on for two years because it was orange. And um, (laughs) it was an old car, just a 2002 Ford Fiesta, but it was orange. It was a hatchback. It was so cute. And I remember two years earlier, I was thinking, wow, how did they get that car? Will I ever have a car? And she was selling the car. I asked if... She would sell it to me. She said yes. And at that time, I had a donor because I people just support me. I raised my own support. And they had given me a check one time for $100. And I knew they could give me more, but that's what they had provided for me. So she had just sent me another check. And so I thought, okay, maybe another $100. And in the email, she said, I just want to let you know what the amount is for so you can check the records. And it was pretty much the amount of the car, and it was my biggest check to date. It was about a little over 4000 U.S. dollars. Wow. So just at the right time, you know, I feel like God meets your needs according to your needs. Mm. When they're higher, they're met. When they're lower, they're met. Mm. You came to South Africa, and you got involved in, or you came to know the community at Every Nation Church in Rosebank. Um, how did you find that church? So that's the church I've been attending, and that church is connected to the children's home that I serve at full-time. 
So the Children's Home I Serve at is called African Havens, mm -hmm. and it's a nonprofit organization and a public benefit organization in its own right, but it's the social outreach ministries of Every Nation Church in Rosebank. Mm -hmm. So that was the church that the directors go to. That's the church we're linked to. That's the church we get volunteers from, although anyone can volunteer. Um, that's the church we go to with the children in our home. And um, it's been a wonderful family because it's very diverse. It's multi-generational. It's multicultural. There were some Americans, so I felt at home. But it was just a wonderful, thriving, lively space. So you came to the church really through the children's home. It wasn't exactly. via the church that you found the children's home. Exactly. Hmm. And I'm blessed. It's an amazing community. The children's home, tell us a little bit about it. What actually happens there? I mean, is it children who have been removed from their parents? Is it orphans? Who are these children? Yes, yeah, so all of our children come from the Department of Social Development. Uh -huh. So they all go through the system. And they're children that are placed in our foster care. They've either been abandoned, removed, or orphaned. Mm -hmm. They've all experienced trauma and loss. And that must be quite hard. How old are the children? So we, we've had babies that were a few days old, four days old, five days old, you know, wrapped in tinfoil, found in a field. Hmm. And our oldest currently is 19 and a half. Oh. And they've been with us for over 10 years. So besides providing for the normal needs of children, food and clothing and so forth, what do you do, you yourself? So I'm an auntie, mm -hmm. specifically right now to five teenage girls. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we're like, we're not their mom, obviously. They've had a mom or they've lost a mom. But we try to be a parental figure in their life, mm. an auntie, a guardian. We wake them up. We take them on outings. We go to church. We live with them. Mm -hmm. We go to school meetings. We try to encourage them. We do life with them. Mm. So it's really a live-in program. It's not something that you attend. It's not a work that you go to every day. No, it's live-in. Actually... Oh. Live I haven't always been living there. I had a foster daughter at one point, but it's right now, over the last year, I've been living there with them. What does it do to you as a person? I mean, surely there's a, there's a lot of demands when you're living in a situation like that. Obviously, there's times of great joy, but you're dealing as well with people's hurt, people's trauma, people's pain. In what ways do you think that affects you? I have noticed that when you parent or start to parent, a lot of your own stuff comes up. And you mm. kind of need to reflect and look at how you were parented and your attachment and your attachment style. So I did some of that work specifically before I became a foster parent. Mm -hmm. But um, it does it does trigger some of your insecurities and some of your hang-ups. Mm. Some of the things that some of the kids do, they get to me and it's because it's my issue. Mm. You know, I have a thing there and they do something and it's like, oh, um, and then I have to reflect and look at myself and figure out what that is and how I can work on that. But you can also burn out very easily. It is very mm. draining emotionally. So I think I figured out that I need to take times of respite and step away or make sure I take my day off, mm. make sure I connect with other people, replug. It's a it's a work in progress. Mm. Something I'm still trying to make sure I do. Mm. Cuz if you if I'm empty, I can't really give. Mm. And that happened to me a couple of weeks ago, so I took 2 days off and I stepped away and I recharged. Mm. So, mm. you have to be conscious of that. And are there sort of professional oversight people perhaps that you have to report to? I mean, so for example, I'm thinking do you have to go for your own personal supervision? 
I do have a director and we have a social worker on staff. Mm-hmm. You know, so we do report to them and and everything like that. But for me personally, like I I personally see a therapist as well, just for my mental health and mm-hmm. my issues that I'm working through. And I found that to be something that's very helpful to me and important. Mm-hmm. So it's more self-care. I think we more have to be self-aware. Mm-hmm. You spoke earlier about a child that you were going to foster and that you tried to adopt, you know, as far as I understand from South Africa unsuccessfully. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Yes. So I've always wanted to adopt and I'm not married, so I'm a single person. And there was the opportunity a couple years ago, before 2010, it was more possible for foreigners to foster children and then to adopt them, Mm. even if they didn't have permanent residency. Now you need to have permanent residency if you're not South African to adopt. So there's this child came into our home. She was young. I had a connection with her. I had a peace, and I felt like I had the capability. I had the space in my life to nurture her more. In the children's home, we do nurture a lot, but we have multiple children, and so it's different from taking a child into your own home. And then I was solely responsible. I mean, there was no oversight I, besides the social worker. Mm. So you could go deeper, mm. and you could. I felt like you could do more, and I was ready for that. And so they, the social workers placed the child in my care, and it was a wonderful experience. I had a sense of peace. I knew the end was blurry. I knew there was no guarantees. So I went in knowing that. And a year into it, when I asked about further steps or what I could do to adopt, I was told they never should have put the child in my care hmm. because of my visa. Even though we went in front of a judge, you know, we did everything through the proper channels. And so that began that journey. But I wasn't naive to the fact that the system wasn't really that fixed and has a lot of loopholes and, yeah. Mm-hmm. That living without knowing what the end is, I mean, that's quite difficult to do that. I mean, surely, what got you through that sense of, well, things are good now, but what's the end going to look like? I must say, it wasn't always easy, but I think what drives a lot of my decisions, like going back to that list that I made, is just the sense of peace. When I have the sense of peace... Mm that's when I feel like I can move forward. And that's when I feel like that's kind of the path God's laying for me. So I had the sense of peace to try and foster this child. It went through, Mm. you know, could have not gone through, and that would have been how it was. And then I just kept pressing on. I loved being a mom. It was really hard to be a single parent without support, like familial support. Mm. But I loved it. I think I just had the peace. But there were valleys and there were hard times when, you know, I almost had my visa denied. Mm. And then I would have had three months to pack up. And that's when I I realized this might not be as sustainable as I thought. But at the same time that was happening, God was putting some seeds into my heart and telling me I might not be with this child forever. And then placing a new picture in my mind of a South African mom and a dad and of this child being a big sister. And even though I still tried to pursue some doors of adoption, I was still knocking, trying to see, that's the picture that always got the sense of peace. Mm. And eventually, miraculously, that's what God provided for this child mm. in within my community. Mm. It's, it doesn't mean it's been easy. Uh, that's what I was going to ask no, you. But I mean, this must have been quite difficult, even though that you sit here and you have a smile on your face yeah. and you're telling the story and you're talking about peace. I mean, that must be quite difficult because surely you formed some sort of bond with this child over the period that the child was with you and then to no longer have the child there. I mean, that's hard. It was hard. Mm. It still is hard. Mm. Uh, we're very bonded. I still see her occasionally, and I hope as the years develop, the relationship will develop and change. 
Yeah, it doesn't mean it's easy. I've cried a lot of tears. I went to a grief course. And also just the changing of my identity from being a mom for over four years to now being a single person, you know, mm. not a mom anymore. She was my person. Mm. And now I don't have any family per se here. I mean, I have the girls that I care for. Mm. So it was hard. Mm. But life is full of hard things, I think. I don't know. You, I think you can't look too far ahead. I kind of do life a day at a time or a year at a time mm. because we never know what's going to happen. There are no guarantees. That's how, kind of how I live it. And one thing is, through this, I'd always want to be a mom, a foster mom or adopted mom, and God gave me my heart's desire. I recognize that I'm so thankful, and the other side is being a single mom was really hard, and I don't know, maybe God in his foresight knew it would be a challenging journey going forward. Mm-hmm. And not that I wasn't good enough, but I don't know if I would have had everything it took to be the best parent for this child. Mm. You spoke a little bit about the system as well, the loopholes in the system. And, you know, the general consciousness, I think, in society is that the system is quite harsh towards children, towards adoption, towards people who maybe want to adopt. It's red tape and it's unnecessary, some of it, and it's slow and it's incompetent. I mean, what was your experience with the system? Yes, the system is very challenging. I've heard a stat a couple of years ago that South Africa only has 16% of the social workers it needs. Mm. It's a high burnout field. It's a high turnover field. Mm. The pay isn't good. So that's part of it. There's not a lot of consistency. So caseworkers will change mm. or they'll go on leave or all of a sudden a new person's handed 150 cases of kids they haven't ever met. Mm. And then the child welfare doesn't have a car, so they can't visit the children mm-hmm. because there's no car. Hmm. There's no driver. Things we take for granted, so they can't go out and do site visits, I've experienced, because there's the office doesn't have a car. Hmm. So children's paperwork gets lost. Adoption isn't the first priority right now. Right now, family reunification is, which is wonderful if there's family reunification. But it seems like the resources, the expertise... The knowledge and the heart is an issue right now. Mm. So they need more support. Mm. You know, I feel for them. It's a very hard profession. But Mm. there are a lot of broken pieces Mm. because of those issues. Children are vulnerable just by nature of being children. Yet this seems to put another layer of vulnerability on them when there's this change all the time, when maybe there's no consistent person that they're dealing with and so forth. What lessons have you learned maybe about children and vulnerability in the system, but also just in your own life from working with children? I think one thing when you ask that question, I'm just thinking about family. So children are vulnerable, but then it's also their families are vulnerable and the parents are vulnerable. And unfortunately, in this country, I think a lot of it has to do with the poverty which I just read a study, like over 55% of the country qualify under the high poverty marker. So over 55% of the country is living in poverty. Mm. So then the poverty affects the parents. Mm. And then that is the main indicator of security, I think, for the child Mm. is how the parent is doing. So part of me thinks we need to focus on parent, deal with the inequalities financially Mm. and in resources so that parents can better care for their children. That's where I really see the holes in the support for the parents and then in communication. 
So the communication is partly language, but it also goes back to economics again. There's no cell phone. The parents are moving. There's no stable home. Mm. So all of that just increases the risks of vulnerable children having traumatic experiences happening to them. Mm. I mean, it really takes, I think, a lot of inner strength to deal with children because they're vulnerable by nature, but because they need some sort of consistent presence in their lives. So you realize that when you're dealing with children like this, that also whatever happens is kind of going to be the tattoo that goes with them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I mean, every child, I mean, children are resilient. We are mm. resilient, but every interaction, I'm sure, leaves a mark on them. Mm. Some a more indelible mark than others. Mm. And I think sometimes in the South African society, in certain pockets, children are dismissed mm. as being lesser than or they should be seen and not heard. But um, children are little people. They're little beings. They're souls. And I think we need to just give them our full presence and our full awareness because especially those younger years, they're so crucial. Hmm. You know, children need to be seen and heard hmm. and cared for. And I think some parts of society are culturally still moving towards that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting point that you make there because you come from a culture and you've been inserted into a different culture, which is quite a complicated culture because it's not a monoculture in many ways. It's, it's quite a complexity. And so the challenges of the cultural stuff must also be something that you've had to process for yourself. Yeah, we have. For example, I know in some South African cultures, it's not respectful to look someone in the eyes, mm. an, an elder or an older person. And for us, we want to make eye contact because we want to see the children. We want them to see us and in my culture, it's respectful to look someone in the eyes. So those are things we've had to navigate and learn from each other, how to honor and respect, and then how to also use some practices that we believe are restorative for the children. And also with all of us who are child care workers. Mm. I mean, technically, I serve the children. So with our child care workers, too, we all come from different backgrounds. Mm. So growing and learning together, and there's always more more we can do. But we need to understand them, respect them, and then find a way forward. What are we going to do in this home? And, and why is this important? Mm. And the turnover of staff in the home, I mean, is it pretty stable? It's pretty stable. We're very blessed. Mm. It's pretty stable. That's good. Yeah. What do you think for you personally has been the greatest learning in the work that you've done in South Africa over these past eight years? I think one of the things is I've just been impressed so much by the South African people, how some of them with how little they have and how much they can do and just their attitudes of their hearts and their resilience and their go-to spirits. I think I didn't realize it. I think a lot of people still don't see that. You know, some of my friends and colleagues, they get up at four in the morning just to get to work on time. And they always look great. And you might not ever think of those things. Mm. Um, and they have to heat up water to bath. And here I am jumping in the bathtub 20 minutes before I jump in my car. And so... Looking behind the facade and just seeing the amazing, resilient people and, and what they can do and appreciating what I have and appreciating what I learned from them, their strengths and gifts. I think that's one of the things I've noticed. Hmm. Yeah. And then I think I've just learned about being a parent and how hard that is, and but how amazing it is. And I learned a lot about single parenting and just having respect for single parents. What's the biggest challenge you found as a parent? <laughs> I think just 
getting a break was hard. Mm, because you were a single parent. Because I was a single parent. Mm. So 24-7. Um, 20, pretty much 24-7. Mm. And then, I mean, disciplining isn't my strength. But we we all have strengths and weaknesses. That's mm. why I think we shouldn't parent in a vacuum. Mm. We need each other community, neighbors, mm. friends. That's one thing still that I think South Africa and Africa has to offer the world, that as the Western world becomes more individual, and certainly we've seen that, here in many parts of Africa, and especially in rural Africa, that sense of community is still very strong. And that sense that this child is looked after, is brought up, is taught in the village, not by simply an individual. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that is great. Something that makes me sad sometimes is that some primary caregivers have to leave and work. And so a lot of children aren't being raised by their moms, mm. which I, I wish there was more opportunity for moms biological moms to raise their children. Of mm. course, fathers as well. There's that epidemic of fathers being absent mm. here and in the States mm. generally. So it's not just an African phenomenon that, because sometimes one gets the impression in the press here that it's an African phenomenon that fathers are absent. You're saying that happens in the States too? In the States, it does. I would say more in African-American communities. Uh -huh. I feel like statistically, although I'm not 100% sure about that, but it does happen in the States as well. Mm. Nina, in the work that you do, in the time that you spend in South Africa, and I'm sure you want to spend much more time there. I do. <laughs> um, how do you think that you are expanding the horizons of hope? I reflected on that question. I thought of two examples of that. One is, you know, sometimes people ask me what I do or if I have my own kids or I say I'm raising these kids or they see the kids and then they realize they're not my own and um, they're like, wow, that's amazing. And not that it has to do with me, but I think it expands people's thinking and they think, oh, what can I do? Mm. Wow, why is she doing this? What else can I do? The other thing that I, a funny story is one of our girls, I call them my nieces, I took her and some friends to the mall and she's black South African and her friends were black South African. And she was saying her friends were like, oh no, you know, we're scared or we don't want to go with a white person which surprised me because we're in Johannesburg. These are 14-year-old girls. It's a modern time. Um, and she was telling them, no, my auntie's nice. She's not like that. And I just thought, wow, maybe they don't have that much contact with white people. It just surprised me. And so to be able to be a person of contact where the, hopefully they'll have a positive experience mm -hmm. and not be afraid is a pleasure for me to do just by doing it. So I just drove them to the mall, asked them about their life, studying. They were happy. But I, I was surprised that they were nervous or possibly didn't have that much contact with people like me. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that brings hope. Your future plans? What are you planning to do for yourself, your own personal goal also in the next foreseeable future? Two of our girls are in matric this mm -hmm. year, so I'm excited to see them graduate and launched. And we have a few more girls coming up. I don't know. I'd like to travel a bit more with my family, my mom, go to Italy. That's on the list for next year, Lord willing. And learn more about trauma. I've thought about studying social work or counseling. I don't know if that's going to happen. But just continuing to grow and see where God leads me. Yeah, in South Africa? Or do you think you may land up somewhere else in another part of the world? I have a visa. You've heard about visa issues, Russell, I'm sure, <laughs> from other guests. I have a visa till 2021, mm -hmm. and I might be able to get it extended, mm. but you never know. 
I love South Africa. I'd like to stay in South Africa, but you just never know where God leads you. So I'm open. One year at a time, Russell. One year at a time. That's wonderful. A real sense of faith there. One year at a time. Yeah. Nina Neubauer, thank you very much for coming in, for talking to us and for telling a difficult story. We wish you all the best as you continue to do this wonderful ministry with children. Thank you. Thank you, Russell. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Russell Pollitt. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.